Okay, here we go. We're going to dive in. Here's what I was hoping we could do. I was hoping we could go back, just land real quickly, the or halfway quickly, the end times conversation, get that one under our belt, and then I think we're probably going to have maybe, hopefully, time to finish chapter 3 together tonight, too. Is that okay? We're okay? Yes? Nod? Okay. All right. All right. So here we go real quick. Let me ask you this. Let's see if we can get our brains going back again. We talked last week about the idea that, that where you place the tribulation or where you place the rapture in, in regards to the tribulation makes a big difference just in how this discussion goes. And we said to you, our best understanding, my best understanding is that there, it's a pre-tribulational rapture, that the, tribu- that the rapture happens at the front end of the tribulation. I think there's scripture to support that. And we gave you a couple arguments, a couple reasons last week for that. Does anybody remember any of those reasons? I will even let you use notes. But anybody remember those at all? Oh, we were doing good. Okay, all right, I'm glad. We're learning. All right, good. All right, here we go. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 7, which says the Holy Spirit has to leave before the Antichrist okay. rise up. So, 2 Thessalonians... Okay, chapter 2, verse 7 says the Holy Spirit is removed. And we just simply said, if you, if you kind of process that through, think about that a little bit. Since the Holy Spirit lives in us, God can't take the Holy Spirit out of the world without taking us out of the world. Okay, that was definitely one of the things we said. Anyone remember any of the other things we said together? Revelation 3.10 was talking about, I will rescue you from that hour. Okay. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And another one, just in case you guys wanted, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Are two passages that I think if you just read them, if you just read them, it just says, I will not let you go through that time of wrath. I will not let that. And I would just say, I think there's some pretty darn clear passages that promise us you and I are not going to see the tribulation. So I'm going to put down clear passages, okay? That's clear passages. All right, and, and we, I think we did one more. Anyone remember what the other one we, we said together? About uh, Jesus' second coming being seen by all the eyes and uh, in conflict with uh, the verse in First Thessalonians, which is, he will come like a thief in the night. Okay, absolutely. So great. I'm glad we remember that one. Okay, so here it is. It's First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says, I will come like a thief in the night. In contrast to that, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Every single eye will see him. And my argument is simply this. Those descriptions of what it means of those two moments are so contradictory to each other, they can't possibly be talking about the same event. And remember we said that if you believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation and therefore the second coming and the rapture are the same thing, then you have a thief that everybody sees. And that just makes no sense to me. I believe you're talking about two completely different moments. I believe the thief moment is clearly the rapture. I don't think the people who don't know Jesus understand the moment. They're going to be taken by surprise, just like when someone's house gets broken into and they're not there. They're taken by surprise. But when Jesus comes back, the second coming in the battle of Armageddon, everybody's going to see that one coming. As a matter of fact, Scripture says we all come with him. All right, so good. I'm glad you guys remembered that. Let me give you, real quickly, one more argument tonight that I think helps support this just a little bit, and then we'll put everything in timelines. 
Grab your Bibles, go with me to the book of Revelation. Oh, and then one thing I want to say out loud too, some, a couple of people came and said, look, I'm interested in maybe getting more of this. I know we're going to finish this tonight. There, I, I think probably one of the best books out, it's called Revelation for Dummies. And it is straight up, you'll get some of the best information you'd ever want to get on the end times. It's understandable. It's not written in theologianese type stuff. Um, but it is absolutely accurate in what it gives. And it'll give you some of the opposing views to take a look at too. It's Revelation for Dummies. You can order it in the bookstore if you want to um, and get it there. Okay, so last one. Here we go. Book of Revelation. Put on your thinking caps. You're going to have to follow me here for a second. Revelation chapter 1. Go to verse 4. To the seven... What's the next word? Churches. Jump down to verse 11. Which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven... Next word. Churches. Jump down with me to verse... 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven... Next word. And the seven lampstands are the seven... Do you get a sense yet that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a theme going on? Okay, we're not convinced. All right, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the... Next word. In Ephesus, right, jump down now to verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the next word. Churches. Jump down to verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. Jump down to verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... Okay, anybody still not convinced that the beginning of the book of Revelation talks an awful lot to the church? Okay, you're not convinced. All right, you're right. Here's the answer. By the time you get, and this is interesting and I would encourage you to go do it. By the time you get to the end of chapter 3, the church is mentioned, you ready for this? 19 times. Now guys, here's any any theologian's going to tell you this. Anytime things are repeated, anytime the scripture goes back and just keeps hitting, that's an important thing. So just consider the moment. In the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned 19 times. Okay, that's settling in? Okay. Now, read this. Okay. Let's go to chapter 4. This is John talking. After this. After this. Hmm. After this. What was he talking about for the first three chapters? Okay, wait, 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 wait. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had, I had first heard speaking to me like a, what's the next word? Trumpet. Does that, does that ring any bells for anybody, the word trumpet there? Ring any bells? Okay, microphone. I hear the word trumpets, I think, about angels. Okay. Uh, coming down from the sky, and they say there will be trumpets in the air or something, you know, calling out uh, to herald the coming of Christ. Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. Steve, leave your finger there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last... Next word. What is it? Trumpet. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. What's that talking about? It's talking about the rapture. The dead in Christ, the bodies of the dead in Christ rise out of the grave and those of us who are still alive are changed in an instant. And what was, this, what was that symbol used in that moment? A trumpet. Now go back with me to Revelation chapter 4. Let's start again, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, ready for this? Get the next phrase. Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. Now, I'm just going to toss this out. You guys don't have to buy it. You just have to think about it. I think you and I just watched, and here's what John describes in this moment. He says, I was standing there. God had been talking to me for three chapters. Church this, church this, church this, church this, church this, church this, church this. And then he says this. And then the angel said to me, I have to show you what happens next. And I heard a trumpet, and I was caught up into heaven. What does that sound like? Sounds a little bit like the rapture, doesn't it? Now, here's the interesting thing for the discussion. Starting in chapter 4, guess how many times the church is mentioned in the rest of the book of Revelation? After this moment that I'm telling you I think sounds like the rapture. And the book of, tribula- the book of Revelation, the rest of the book, talks about the tribulation. So guess how many times the church is mentioned during the tribulation in the book of Revelation after that verse? Zero. Zero. Isn't that interesting? Zero. So if the church is there during the tribulation, why isn't it mentioned? It's not because God didn't know how to talk about the church. He talked about the church 19 times in the first three chapters. And then something that looks like the rapture happened and it is never mentioned again. Now, it does come up at the very end of the book of Revelation. If you go all the way to chapter 22. Okay, but here's the deal. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, it simply says this. Okay, and it's, it's actually the closing of the book. It's the, the Revelation part is pretty much over. And here's what it just says. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. So he just says, look, I gave the book of Revelation so that the churches would know what was coming. That's all that says. It's the only other time in the entire book of Revelation the church is mentioned. Isn't it interesting that all the way through the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, the word church is never used, not once. I think it's a darn good argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, so I'll leave, I'll leave you with that. Let's, let's build our timeline for just a few moments. And... Okay, we said that the church hasn't always been here, right? So we start at the beginning with Adam and Eve. And we're going to put a little bit of clothes on Eve tonight. But Adam and Eve, okay? And, and there's where we started. During that first opening period of time, how are people supposed to know about God? They don't have a Bible, right? There's no Bible yet. How do people know about God? He's present. 
Okay, he's with them. During, during the Garden of Eden, yes, he's present. But we're going to let get Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. So once Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, how are people supposed to hear about God? Through prophets? There are no prophets. It's a great guess. Through creation. Through the stuff that he's designed, he's made. Potentially through creation. I, I, and I, I, think that, I think that answer is true of every generation. I think Psalm says anybody. I think Romans 1 says anybody looking at creation should be able to figure out there's someone bigger than them, stronger than them, smarter than them. So that voice speaks to all men at all times. But who had primary responsibility to tell the story of God during this period of time? There is no Bible. There are no prophets. Well, Adam and Eve must have passed down their knowledge to their children. Okay, so you just got the answer. Adam and Eve were supposed to tell their children. Their children, when they grew up and became parents, were supposed to tell their children. The primary responsibility for the gospel, for this story of Jesus was family. If you were going to hear about God, your family better tell you. That's, that's how you were going to hear it, because there was no Bible, there were no prophets, family was supposed to tell you. So let me ask this question, did family work? No. Matter of fact, uh, it was a dismal failure, okay? So uh, then after that, um, how once family was not the answer anymore. How, how do you hear about God? Where does God give the authority and the power after that? Through chosen people. Okay, through chosen people. People to come to and he communes with them and he actually sits down with them and tells them what he wants them to know. Okay, and who do we call those chosen people? The patriarchs. Okay, the... Okay, all right, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's right. I just want to see it to a simpler answer. The first patriarch who is given this responsibility is a guy by the name of... Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, right? So he says to Abraham, I'm going to choose out a people. I'm going to choose out a people, and it is that people's job to tell my story. That's what I'm going to do. And matter of fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to so bless my people that the rest of the world will be jealous of them. They'll be jealous of the people of God and want to come to me because of the people of God. How did that work? How did that do? They were lousy at it, right? Let's just be honest. They were lousy at it. So what did God do next once they, this wasn't working? What was, what's the next thing in line? How does God begin to work with them? How does God begin to lead them so that they'll be godly people and do the right thing? Anybody remember? Prophets. It's not prophets yet. It's going to come. What's the next thing? We're, this is good, guys. We're getting Bible survey together. The law. The law. Okay. So now he gives the law. Okay. So it's Moses. So now he gives them some commands. He writes it down. Here's the law. How do they do with that? Lousy. Lousy. Lousy, right? I mean, all you have to do is read your Bible. And I mean, what? It's like every other generation, they're off worshiping false gods and putting idols up in Israel and going to the hills to pray. And Lousy. What does God do next? Huh? He doesn't destroy him yet. They ask for kings. What happens before kings, though? 
What did they have before kings? Judges. So now he would send judges. Give, give me the name of a judge. Solomon's not a judge. Solomon's a king. Deborah was a judge. Gideon was a judge. Samson was a judge. Okay, all judges in Israel given to call Israel's people back to living the right way. Okay, did judges work? Oh, it was disastrous. It was horrible. And the people of Israel began to say, well, you know what we really need? We need a king like all the other nations. And God said, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, guys. No, we're not going for a king. Matter of fact, if you, if you kind of look through the story, they were one generation too early getting a king. They asked for Saul. God was bringing David one generation later. And instead of getting the king who was after God's own heart, they got a king who had no heart for God. But they go for kings. And, and just, it's just a reminder to you and me that sometimes... God is getting ready to give you and me the very thing that we're asking for. And sometimes we're so impatient that we actually are cursed by getting what we asked for too early. Okay? So kings. Does kings work? How, how good is that experiment? Do kings lead Israel and they all become just amazing followers of God and consistent in their faith? How do kings work? It's horrible. You have one king who's good and the next two kings are pitiful and then one king is pretty good and the next king is loud it's horrible what happens after kings huh prophets all right, let, all right so here's why i'm asking you this okay so prophets are next what's going on other than me boring you to death right now what's going on what, what's god doing here God, God sits there and says, look, I, I gave you your family to tell you about me. I set up the law, so I basically made this kind of a governmental thing, and you had governmental regulation, and you didn't do that with Moses. I, I gave you judges. I gave you kings. I gave you prophets. What's God doing? He's giving man every opportunity. There you go. So you know what's going to happen someday? We're going to stand in heaven, and nobody's going to be able to go to God and go, God, look, Here's the reason people didn't follow you. You just didn't have the right tactic. And God's going to go, no. I tried every conceivable method to call people to me, to make this clear, to put it out there. I tried family. I tried government. I tried judges. I tried kings. I tried prophets. And you would not listen to me. What happens when Israel finally rejects the prophets? And we're done there. Anybody know what happens next for Israel? Exile and captivity. Okay? This is when Israel stops being a nation. This is when Israel goes into captivity. Okay? And now all of a sudden we're getting books like the book of Daniel. Books of captivity. And what's happening in Israel. Here's the only reason that's interesting. Did you know that as Israel goes into captivity, literally the prophet Daniel, as he's writing, says, I can tell you exactly how long it's going to be until Messiah comes. And he tells them it will be 69 weeks of years till Messiah comes. Guess how many years it was from the time Israel went into captivity until Jesus walked the earth. 69 weeks of years. 
Isn't that amazing? The truth is, Israel had absolutely no reason to miss Messiah. They were, they were told the approximate date in which he would come. Here's the interesting thing about, and here, we just did all that, so, but let me see if I can get it to the land for you. In that prophecy, he didn't just say there was 69 weeks of years. He said this, there will be 69 weeks of years plus one. Plus one. So remember that statement. Okay? So, clean this off. Here we go through history. This is Israel. Israel goes into captivity. What ends that moment? What starts to change this story for forever? The first coming of Jesus. It's a manger. And in that first coming of Jesus, Jesus simply says to them, look, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We could do this right now. Let's, let's just set it all right. What does Israel choose in that moment to do? What do they do with Messiah? They throw him away. I mean, guys, think about the moment. Think about the moment. Jesus walks in their presence. He says, I'm here. We'll just, we'll just set up the kingdom of heaven right now on earth. Let's do that. And they say, no. No thanks. Because they wanted a political war. They wanted Jesus to melt all the eyes of the Romans. And Jesus said, no, no, no. This revolution is going to start in your heart. And they said, we're not interested. And they threw Messiah away. Who nails Jesus to the cross? Roman soldiers, but Roman soldiers acting on behalf of who? The Jews, the Sanhedrin. Okay, they reject the Messiah. This brings an interesting moment in history, a moment that this is the reason you're going to read all through the New Testament. Paul is going to say, this moment that you and I live in is a mystery. This was not the original game plan because something happens once Israel rejects Jesus and puts him on a cross. And that thing is the church. Matter of fact, and I, I, signed it, I, kind of talk, I talked about it last week just for a second, when you read the book of Matthew, for the first 12 chapters of the book of Matthew, Jesus says the kingdom's here. Let's do it. Let's do the kingdom. You get to chapter 13, the leaders of Israel reject Jesus. They say everything you're doing is by Beelzebub. You're doing this of the devil. And from that day forward, Jesus says, I'm going to go to a cross and die. Completely different message from the first 12 chapters. The Son of Man is going to go to a cross and die. And he begins to talk about the church. Okay? So the church age. What's going to end this church age that you and I are living in? The rapture. Okay. So you and I are living in the church age. You and I are going along until there comes a moment. And here's what we're going to draw it as. We're going to draw it as an arrow that doesn't make it to the bottom. Because remember we said Jesus meets us where? In the clouds. Okay, there you go. I had to go to seminary to be able to draw like this. Okay, so he meets us in the clouds. We get caught up. Okay, rapture. The rapture, we just have argued together, marks the beginning of what event? The tribulation. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. Now go back with me. Prophecy said to Israel... 69 weeks of years and then Messiah will be cut off plus one more week. Who was that prophecy given to? The church or to Israel? 
Israel. Guess whose week that is? It's not your and my week. It's Israel's week. It's one last chance. It's seven years in which God is going to say, are you ready for Messiah yet? Because he's going to come one more time right here. Are you ready for Messiah yet? It's a week of years for Israel. And if you look at the tribulation, it literally just gets worse and 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 worse for seven years. As if God just says, okay, that spanking didn't work. I'll spank you a little harder. Are you ready for Messiah yet? No? Okay. I'll spank you a little harder. Are you ready for Messiah yet? No? Okay. I'll spank you a little harder. Seven years. That's what the tribulation is. It's seven years of God saying, tell me. Tell me you're ready for Messiah. Okay? That is the tribulation period. Okay? During that period of time, if we've got this right, you and I went to heaven. Right? You and I have gone to heaven. And we said, what's transpiring in heaven? And you better remember, because this is what started us on the whole discussion together. It was 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What's happening in heaven? Okay, so there we go. It's the uh, ceremony or banquet of the bride. Okay, marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, and, and here's all that is, guys, before you get too freaked out. It just simply says, the church is the bride of Christ. And we get all weirded out, especially the guys in the room. We go, what? I don't want to be a girl to Jesus. That's just weird. I, you know. That's not what he's saying. What he's trying to do in human terms is he's trying to say, the church is forever going to have a relationship with Christ that is unique and amazing. And the best way I can describe how Jesus is going to feel about the church is the way a groom feels about his bride. And I know, guys, have you ever stood at a wedding and seen the Cheshire grin on the face of a groom? And in the midst of that, though, the tears coming down his eyes as he's going, man, I am so lucky to have that woman walking down this aisle to be with me. And all he's trying to say to you is, guys, that's how Jesus feels about the church. He feels like a groom standing at the end of the the aisle waiting for his bride. And that you and I, because we are the church, because in some ways, guys, we're doing what Israel failed to do. We're accepting Messiah. We're chasing Messiah. And Jesus just says, look, you and I are going to have an incredible relationship through all eternity. You are my bride. Okay? Does that make sense at all? But for the bride to get ready, and this, we know this, as a matter of fact, in our home right now, we're getting ready to have a wedding. Oh, boy, I'm just telling you, that's something else. You know, and only women understand all that. I admit I don't. But here's what I will tell you. We have spent months getting ready. I'm just going, dude, let's go to the justice, the peace, call it done. But we've spent months getting ready for this thing. Well, you get that that's also supposed to be a picture. You get that if you and I are the bride of Christ, you and I are supposed to live our lives getting ready. That's why these, our lives aren't about us. You and I are supposed to live our lives getting ready to be the bride. And boy, stop and think about the meticulous care that a young lady takes to get ready for that day. That day. To be able to stand there in front of her groom that day. 
And God says, that's what the church is supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be taking that same care to one day stand in front of your groom in heaven and say, I, I got ready because this is a big day. Okay? All right. Part of that is the judgment seat of Christ. Remember we said the Bema seat. And remember we said 1 Corinthians chapter 3 now. All of our works are going to get tossed in the fire. They're going to get burned up. Some are going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Some are going to be gold, silver, precious stone. Guess what that is? That's the bride getting ready for the wedding. It's why you and I want it to come out. Gold, silver, precious stone. That's our wedding stuff. Okay? That happens in heaven. The Bema Seat of Christ. Who's at the Bema Seat of Christ? Remember we said who's there? Who's, who's at that judgment? Who gets judged that day? The church. Only the church. Old Testament saints don't get judged that day. The prophets don't get judged that day. Everybody who lives during the tribulation doesn't get judged that day. The church. The bride is getting ready. The church gets judged that day. So let me ask you the next question. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone, those were all of our what? They got tossed in the fire. All of our works. All of our what type of works? Bad works? Good works. Good works. In other words, all those things are the things that we're claiming we did in the name of Jesus. And nobody knows for sure if they really were good or not until the fire tests them. Remember that phrase? Till the, right, here we go. Let's go back there real quick because you're looking at me with absolutely all right, crazed eyes. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 3. This is what started us. It's verse 11. Here's what it says. For no one can lay any foundation other than Jesus, or the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on his foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what... If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Guess what's not present at that judgment? Sin. No mention of sin. Why not? How come we're not being judged for sin that day? Why? Jesus covered it with his blood. Because here's what you got to get, guys. you got to get this. Jesus covered it with his blood, and that's final. Matter of fact, Scripture says, And I will take your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will cover them over, and I will remember them, what? No more. Here's the thing, guys, and this is a big deal, because some of us are Christians, and we still live in guilt. And don't me wrong. There's a part of our past life and the stupid stuff we did and the wrong stuff we did that we need to learn from. We just do. We need to go, boy, that was a horrible decision. I'm not going to ever make that decision again. If I have the opportunity, I'll decide totally different. And somewhere we've got to use this as our testimony to go, look, I'm just going to tell you, well, I'm a person who's made some horrible life decisions. That's what it is. But you and I are, are not to live in the guilt of that. Okay, now let me balance that. There may be some apologies you and I need to make for what we've done in the past. There may be boyfriends we've got to go apologize to girlfriends we got to go say sorry family members we got to say look i i was an idiot but at the end of the day guys you get 
those sins are paid for, washed away. And when you and I sit there and go, God, man, remember that sin I did three years ago and I just, I feel so bad about it and would you please forget? And he, you know what he says to that? What sin? What, what sin are you talking about? Because what did God just promise us? Your sins I will cover and I will remember them no more. And you just, guys, I'm just, if God says I'm not going to remember it, then guess what God's going to do perfectly? Not remember it. He's going to forget it perfectly. So that's why when you and I as Christians stand in heaven, there is no videotape of our lives. Because it's been covered under the blood of Jesus Christ and it is forever forgotten. Because that's the wonder of the blood of Jesus. Now, on one side, that's a good story. Is that a great story? Okay, good. On one side, that's a really stinky story. Because there are some Christians, I wish God would show their videotape. <laughs> They've done some really rotten things to me, and I wish God would just go, look at that, see what you did to Lynn? Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is it ain't going to happen, right? Because since they're a brother or sister in Christ, their sin got covered under the same blood my sin did. And the only the only redeeming thing I can say for that moment is I don't want my videotape either so okay I guess it's fair at the end but guys you just need to know that and that's why when the Bible describes the Bema Seat of Christ it's only good works we're only figuring out what we did in the name of Jesus and does it last there is absolutely and guys this is powerful no mention of sin there okay This is powerful because there is another judgment coming and that judgment is a videotape. Okay? All right. Question? Okay. Is that during the tribulation that we're getting judged? Yes. Yes. And here's here's what's going to happen. Let me... When Jesus comes back in the second coming, one of the things that happens, and you can read this in the book of Revelation, it talks about the idea that all of us, that are all the Christians, okay, not the old, all the Christians, come back with Jesus at the second coming. So guess who's at the battle of Armageddon? And as best you can tell from Scripture, we're actually kind of participating in the fight. We're participating in the judgment in this world when Jesus comes back. But you and I come back in white robes. We come back already judged, already pure, okay? That's all done by the time the second coming happens, okay? What happens right after that? Okay, so here's second coming. What happens at the second coming? That's a better answer. What happens at the second coming? Battle of Armageddon, that's how the tribulation closes. How do, what happens at the second coming? What does Jesus do? He just shows up and says, hey! What happens at the second coming? Um, the devil is locked in the pit. Okay, the devil's going to be locked in the pit. Good for you. Okay, so let's do that. Here's a pit. Okay, it's actually the bottomless pit, right? And then we'll make a little devil here. And we're going to drop him in the pit. Okay? So he goes in the pit. But let's go right at the second coming. What happens at the second coming? Here we go. Um, he'll come back in his white robe on his white horse and he'll speak and there won't be any bloodshed but those that are evil will just fall dead in the streets and is that what you're looking for? Yeah, 
those who have ref- those who have gone through the tribulation and have taken all those spankings and said, no, I will not follow God, 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 I've taken the mark of the beast. And here's one of the things, and we have, sometime when we study the whole thing, we'll take a look at it, but you realize, Scripture says, if you take the mark of the beast during this period of time, you will not be able to reverse your decision. So a decision to take the mark of the beast is the decision to follow Antichrist. So all those who have taken the mark, people will die during this period of time not to take that mark. Because it's a final decision. It's a determining decision during this period of time. So all those who've taken the mark of the beast during the tribulation, all those who took the easy way, now get judgment. And scripture simply says, they are killed. They're dead. They're, they will be slain. Okay. So the unbeliever, the one who refused to hear God's voice, will be slain. If that's the, if that's the case, then who's still alive at the end of the tribulation? If all the unbelievers get slain, no, not the church. We're already gone. Matter of fact, we just made a U-turn and came back with Jesus. It's not the church. Whoever during the tribulation decided to follow Jesus. So we're going to call them, just for conversation, tribulational saints. Okay? Whoever during the tribulation chose to suffer and follow Jesus and risk their lives, those are the ones who are going to live and survive the tribulation. Yep. But isn't there bloodshed somewhere? Because doesn't it mention that at the Battle of Armageddon, the blood fills as high as... Yeah, one of the things it says about the Battle of Armageddon is that the blood will flow in the Valley of Medigo, which it's an interesting thing, guys. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you can stand at the Valley of Medigo, and it's a huge valley, and realize the Bible says right there is where Jesus is going to come back. And Scripture says that the blood will run so thick that day, because it's World War III, the blood will flow so thick that day in the valley because what's happening is the armies of the east and the armies of the west are meeting at the valley of Medigo and fighting and then Jesus interrupts the battle. But it says the blood will be as deep as the bit of a horse's bridle on that day from the slain bodies in the war. Now, and what I don't know is, and it, I, I, I don't know if there's blood or not when Jesus does his, I don't know. I don't know that answer. Scripture isn't real clear. Of that. All I know is the people who didn't follow God are going to die. Okay? People who followed God will live. Okay, we're together so far? All right. What's next? What happens after this? Anybody know? Um, Christ sets up his kingdom for the millennium. There you go. Thousand-year reign. Okay? We call it the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign on the throne. Now, here's why this is important, guys. Every once in a while, you're going to run into someone in theology that says, hey, let's do this so the kingdom of God can come now. And you just need to hear this answer. The kingdom of God cannot come now. The kingdom of God was offered when Jesus was here on earth. The kingdom of God cannot come until Jesus is on earth again. You have to have Jesus sitting on the throne to have the kingdom of God. So anybody who says, hey, the world's just going to get better and we're going to all throw away our plastic bottles and it's just going to be nice and then we're going to have the kingdom of God. The answer is no. You cannot have the kingdom of God until you have the king you have to have the king here to have the kingdom. And that doesn't happen until the second coming. Okay? So it, you just, you can't. You and I cannot set up the kingdom of God till the king comes. And that's the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. We said it already. Satan's going to be bound. It's going to be an interesting time. People will be tempted during the millennial reign, but they're only going to be tempted in their flesh. They're not going to be tempted by Satan during that period of time. They're just not. And they're going to live absolutely in the presence of Jesus Christ. 
during that period of time. You and I are going to have full access to heaven and to earth, but the tribulation saints who are going to be having their babies and their children for a thousand years are going to live here on earth. Millennial kingdom. How does that end? Anybody know? Okay, so let's erase this. How many people are going, I have never heard this before and you're freaking me out? (laughs) All right, good. Okay, so tribulation, second coming, seven years, thousand years, millennium, okay, Jesus on the throne, Satan is not a bit, Satan's in the bottomless pit, okay, horns. So people can still be born during the millennium? Yes, they will be. they're automatically saved? Well, here's the deal, during the millennium, there is no death. There is no death during the millennium. So if you lived through the tribulation, you do not die during the millennium. thousand years. But you're having babies during the millennium. You're having children during the millennium. Okay? What marks the end of the millennium? Pastor, hmm? yep. won't there be redeemed bodies and earthly bodies all yeah, well, because, the same? Yeah, right. because you and I are going to have already received our new body the tribulation saints won't have. Only the bride of Christ has received the new bodies. Yep. That's why you and I can go to heaven and come back to earth. Tribulation saints can't. They're still human, fully human people who cannot go up to heaven. Can't do it. They'll live here on earth. I think uh, after the 1,000 years, I think Satan will be released. There you go. So here's, here's it. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, this is the most bizarre. If the rest of it wasn't bizarre yet, this is the most bizarre. Satan gets released after a thousand years. So for a thousand years, people have lived and seen Jesus in person on the throne. And Satan is released at the end of the millennium. And guess what Satan comes out and says to those people? Not to us, because we're already sealed in earth. But guess what he says to those people that lived during the millennium? You don't want to follow Jesus. You're crazy. Wouldn't you rather rule in hell than serve in heaven? And guess what's going to happen at the end of the millennium? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these people are going to turn against God. One more time for God to say, I have tried everything. I tried ruling on earth in your presence, and you still turned on me. You still... And this really is the last chapter in the book as far as what God... We don't, we don't know much after this chapter. But at the one thing that still happens... Anybody know what closes the whole conversation out? What event? Where are my microphones? Oh, time. You're telling me time. All right. So let me, I'll do it real quick. All right, here we go. So here we go. The one thing that closes it out. You ready? White throne. White throne judgment. That closes everything out. Here's why this is different, okay? And then we'll stop tonight. At this judgment, this is video cameras. This is that judgment you hear him say, and every deed shall be made known. Every single thought, every single thing. Are you and I in that judgment? No. You and I were at the Bema seat. So guess who's in that judgment? Old Testament saints, they weren't in the Bema seat. Tribulation saints, they weren't at the Bema seat. Every person who ever lived in history who rejected God is at that judgment. 
Okay? It's the judgment where he says, let's take the sheep and put them on one side. Let's take the goats and put them on the other side. White throne judgments. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, I think, if you want to go. Chapter 20, verse 11. It's, it's back there. It's Revelation chapter 27, verse 11. You can go back there and look. But here's the deal. Everything that person's ever done is going to be shown on a screen. Why? Why do that? Why is everything that person's ever done, ever thought, ever said in private, in public, going to be shown on a screen? Not one more chance. Why does the average person who does not accept Jesus tell you they're going to heaven? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. So picture this moment. You are sitting in the presence of God. Can we say that again? You are sitting in the presence of God. Okay. I remember when I was a little kid, and my grandmother died when I was nine. And you know what the thing that terrified me was? That my grandma could see what I was doing. Okay? Because she was grandma and she was holy. Okay? You'll be sitting in the presence of God. And now they're going to show the videotape of everything you ever said, everything you ever thought. And guess what that person who never had those things covered by the blood of Jesus is going to say about five minutes into the tape? I get it. I am not a good person. Please turn off the tape. And there will not be one person who stands that day and says, I am good enough for heaven. But God will show the videotape till you need it turned off. And not one person will stand that day. Okay? Because that's what they chose. They said, I'm going to go to heaven by being a good person. And God said, okay, we'll, we'll videotape this thing. White throne judgment. Okay? It's the last chapter we know about. We don't, God doesn't tell us very much about what happens. New heaven, new earth, but doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happens next. Okay, so that's it. We landed that, although we didn't get a whole lot further. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll go. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for telling us some stuff to be really, really honest that just seems unbelievable and incredible, and yet because you've promised it, we know that it is absolutely unequivocally without one single mistake true and so we trust you for that god we we think about being the bride of christ and the fact that one day we're going to stand and take everything we've ever done and throw it at your feet and say this is what my life meant jesus and god i just pray that for all of us in this room that that would be a day of rejoicing that we would say i lived my life well and i gave myself completely to my groom and this i pray in jesus name amen Thank you guys and